content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence if investing. The show is pre-recorded. Everyday Wealth is produced and created by Edelman Financial Engines and hosted by Gene Chatsky. Ms. Chatsky is not an employee or client of the firm. She receives fixed cash compensation as host and for related activities, and therefore has an incentive to endorse Edelman Financial Engines and its planners. For additional information, please see www.edelmanfinancialengines.com slash everydaywealth. The 2022 Top 100 Independent Advisory Firm ranking issued by Barron's is qualitative and quantitative, including assets managed by the firm, technology spending, staff diversity, succession planning, and other metrics. Firms elect to participate but do not pay to be included in the ranking. Compensation is paid for use and distribution of rating. Awarded September 2022 based on data within a 12-month period. Investor experience and returns are not considered. At the intersection of life and money, this is Edelman Financial Engine's Everyday Wealth with personal finance expert, Gene Chatsky. Edelman Financial Engines has been ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. Now, here's Gene Chatsky. Hey, everyone. I'm Gene Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining me today on Everyday Wealth. So a couple months ago, we decided to dedicate a whole episode to answering your listener questions. And we got such a great response to that show. We thought, why not do another one? So that is exactly what we're going to do today. We've got the A-team in the house. That would be Andy Smith and Isabel Barrow, both of whom are wealth planners with Edelman Financial Engines. Great to see you guys. Good to see you both also. As well. And just a reminder here before we dive into the mailbag, if you've got a question that you want to submit, we want to hear it. We want to try to answer it. You can go to everydaywealth.com, scroll down to the box that says, ask the host, type in your question and send it our way. Okay, let's dive in. You ready? Yes. Let's do it. Isabel, you first. Okay. The first question is about RMDs. A listener asks, what's the best way to take the RMD and why? For example, monthly, annually, quarterly. Also, should I reinvest the money if I don't need it or donate it to charity? And if I do need it, what's the most efficient time to take it? I just want to go on the record that this is four questions, but you can answer them all. All right. Let me just start from the top and maybe describe what this question is actually asking, which is how to take a required minimum distribution. So when you're over a certain age, which is 73, or maybe for some of you going to be 75, TBD, you have to take money out of your retirement plans, uh, either an IRA or a 401k, and you've got to do so in the calendar year before December 31st based on an IRS table that tells you how much you have to take. So the first thing to know is that this is incredibly confusing because it could be different depending on how old your spouse is or did you inherit that money from someone who was a non-spouse, et cetera, et cetera. So this is actually kind of a multifaceted question, but if we really just want to focus on the distribution part of it, which is the, you know, how do I take the money out? Should I take it out monthly, quarterly at the end of the year and just try to boil it down to that simple answer? Well, there's also not a simple answer to that because I would say it depends. For most people who are living in retirement off of their money, I think that having it come as a paycheck every month is really makes the most sense because you're used to getting a paycheck from work. You know, that that's how you have operated and paying your expenses month to month is I get a paycheck and goes into the bank account and I spend it down and then I get paid again. So I think for a lot of people, the most efficient way to do this is just to take it out monthly. However, 
you know, that being said, there are those who maybe just operate in a little bit of a different way where they say, well, this piece of my retirement income puzzle is there to do a certain thing. Like I'm going to use my required distribution just to pay my taxes or just to pay for travel or whatever it is. And in that case, if you're just doing a once a year distribution, mathematically speaking, it's probably better just to wait until November or early part of December to take it because you've gotten the whole year's worth of potential market growth under your belt. Mm. So I think that that's a, you know, that's something to consider is is whether or not if, if you're not using it for your monthly income, you know, maybe you can wait and push it till later on in the year. But what I would also caution you against is don't wait until the very end of the year because that gets really, really tricky and you do not want to miss this thing. Yeah, I would say that, you know, there's no one size fits all approach to any of this. Um, I've got some clients who want to get it done at the beginning of the year and then they kind of whittle that down over time. There are some that are vehemently opposed to having the federal government get one cent of taxes until the very end. And so I've told them, kind of like what you said, do not wait too long because there's processing time and everything else. I think the idea is, is that whatever you decide to do, realize that it can change. And so if you are doing the monthly approach and it works great, continue it. If you're doing the, hey, I'm doing it with property taxes or gift to kids or qualified charitable distributions, it doesn't have to be in place. It's not like a you decide this once at the beginning and that's what it is forever. Just make sure that, you know, if you're managing this, you stay on top of this. If you're working with an advisor, work with them and let them know that, hey, this is what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah. And I think I would add to that. So you mentioned the qualified charitable distributions and that was part of the Mm -hmm. question, actually. So that's like part two of the question is if I don't need it, should I reinvest it? Should I donate it to charity? And, you know, you bring up, I think, a really good reminder is that if you don't need the funds or if you don't need all of the funds, you can distribute money directly out of your IRA um, if you are qualified for an RMD or you're over 70 and a half, up to $100,000 to a charity directly and not have to pay taxes on that. So, you know, if you're already charitably inclined and planning on gifting money to charity and you have an RMD, it may benefit you to do this, especially if you're someone who is not itemizing your taxes. It can be even more beneficial. So I know that that's a lot and complicated. So talk to your advisor about that if you're considering it. Another part of the question was, should I reinvest the money? And I think, you know, people ask me all the time, like, so I have the RMD, I guess I have to take it to the bank. Well, the answer is no, you don't have to take it to the bank. You you can reinvest it in a non-IRA account. You just have to pay taxes on it, right? That's the only piece of it is that you have to take it out of the retirement plan, pay taxes on it either now or in April or quarterly or however you do your taxes. And you can always reinvest those funds. So it doesn't mean you have to spend it. It just means you have to take it out. Right. And it changes each year, right? So some years you've got the qualified charitable distribution. Some years you're paying yourself and you're reinvesting. Some years you're buying a boat. I don't know, like whatever it is, right? So just know (laughs) that it it can be as tactical as you want it to be. Um, It's not kind of a set it and just leave it alone forever. Right. And I guess now we know that Andy's buying a boat. No, no. Giant hole in the water into which you pour money. So (laughs) other, other, other choices there. So Andy, this next question is yours. It has to do with a topic that we covered here recently, but I think it's important to revisit because it's definitely going to be on a lot of people's minds going into the new year. 
The listener asks, given that 2024 is an election year, is there anything I should be doing either in my portfolio or financially in general to prepare for what will probably be a very contentious year politically? Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely on everybody's minds. Um, and depending upon kind of where you are on, on any particular spectrum, you have very kind of vehement thoughts uh, about things. Maybe you kind of miss this whole idea of... Uh, of an election next year? Hopefully not. Um, so what I'm kind of telling people is that no matter who your person is, right, no matter whose name is on your jersey, what color your jersey is, you got to remember that money is green, okay? Money is not blue. Money is not red. No matter what either side wants you to think, you have to be as agnostic about this as possible. And you have to realize kind of what the tripartite system of government actually provides, okay? So there's a separation of powers for a reason. Congress is the way that it is. The judicial system is the way that it is. And the executive branch is the way that it is. So that's not like oh my gosh, this person is in office. Now this is what it means economically and everything else. We went back and we looked at a lot of different administrations since 1948. We also looked at different combinations of administrations and who was the majority in the House of Representatives, who was the majority in the U.S. Senate. And we tried to get a sense of how often different things occurred, and what was the average annual return on the S&P 500 based on those different periods. And regardless of who your political affiliation may be, and if it has changed, I think that you'd be surprised what the numbers actually bore out. And so what we found was that there were eight different possible combinations between 1948 and 2021 in terms of who was in the White House, who was the majority in the House of Representatives, and who was the majority in the Senate. And it changes, okay? And so we have this available. You can absolutely kind of ask, you know, to to see a copy of this. The idea is this. I'm not going to bore you with numbers, but it doesn't really matter. Okay. And it sounds completely bonkers, right? Because you see all these magazine articles, you hear all of this kind of wailing and gnashing of teeth on talk shows and news shows and everything else. And if this person is in office, there is much wailing and gnashing of teeth set to ensue. Or if this person gets in office, then there's going to be kind of manna from heaven and rainbows and unicorns, and it's just going to be this magnificent kind of economic period. The idea is, is that you need to have a plan based on your time horizon. You need to have a plan based on what you are trying to accomplish with your kids and grandkids and estates and taxes and insurance and everything else. So what I encourage people to do is not make huge bets on political parties because Things change. Um, there is no one kind of magical combination for anything that you have to approach in the market. It goes back to what you are trying to accomplish from a financial perspective. You are going from point A to point B, and you are trying to pay for that over time. If you're working towards retirement, you continue to save in a 401k. If you are retired, you're basically trying to stay retired. And so you've got mailbox money and income and other expenses and all of that stuff together. What you have to do is basically pull emotion out of the decision-making as much as possible. That's why working with an advisor who you can kind of yell at and beat up on and say all these different things that you're worried about, the advisor can basically say, hey, this is what you're trying to accomplish. 
this is the the least amount of risk that you have to take on. So there'll be some stocks, there'll be some bonds, there'll be some cash. How do you plan for taxes and all these different things? But just know that whatever that plan is, it's going to change. And so this is not a set it and forget it sort of financial plan. It's great that you have this kind of written document, but you don't just put it on the bookcase and forget about it. Things will change. And so we we adapt year over year. We adapt you know, administration over administration. But the idea is, is that money is green. It's not blue or red. And don't trade your money based on your political beliefs. I would also add that, you know, there's the the old saying that you've probably heard before. And I think it was James Carville who said, when people vote, you know, it's the economy, stupid. And the the point of it is, is that the economy is a big focus in our minds and we think about politics, right? But I would also just remind everyone that the economy and the market, so being an investor is not the same thing as looking at how the economy is doing, right? The economy impacts us in so many ways as we think about interest rates and inflation and our jobs and, you know, all sorts of things. But to be an investor is a little bit different. The stock market and the economy are not the same thing. So I think that's the point also of the study is that the stock market responses and the stock market returns were not based on what the economy was doing all the time. It doesn't go hand in hand. And so there wasn't a strong alignment between what the stock market returns were and what the politicians were deciding to do and, and how that impacted our economy overall. So I would just make that point that those are those are two things that operate in a little bit of a different way. And you have to remember that the market tends to be a leading indicator. The economy, there are many pieces of it that tend to be lagging indicators. And so they're not only different beasts, they operate on very, very different time horizons. For anybody who wants to dive deeper into this, as well as really get a grip on how to tune out the political and geopolitical events and stay focused on your long-term plan, check out episode 46 in our archives. We spent a whole show on this. All right, Isabel, we've got another one for you. And I, I actually love this question. I've been seeing this a lot. A listener asks, what's the point of owning bonds in my portfolio? Why not just own equities in cash, especially when cash is earning a higher interest rate these days? Oh, it's such a good question um, because, I mean, we get this, Andy, all the time, right? It's like, you know. I'm glad you're answering this question. Right. People, for some, what do people hate about bonds? I mean, come on now, people. Bonds are great. Bonds are there in a portfolio for so many reasons. But I think the first of which is that unlike cash, bonds typically have an inverse relationship to stocks. And so what they do typically, and I won't say all the time because there are years where you see more correlation between stocks and bonds or they move in similar patterns, but typically bonds are there to be able to provide some stability and support when the stock market is down. So if they have an inverse relationship, if the stock market is down, the bond market is up. Cash is just flat right? So cash is not providing that inverse relationship. In addition, typically bonds are going to pay you more than cash, right? So cash and inflation are going to follow a very similar kind of trajectory, right? But bonds are going to perform in a little bit of a different way. And we have different durations of bonds. That means different maturities. And they may have a different type of performance depending on where, if we're in a rising interest rate environment or falling interest rate 
trade environment. So bonds are there really, they're an asset class. Cash is an asset class as well, but within bonds, we've got various multiple asset classes. You've got short-term bonds, intermediate-term bonds, long-term bonds. You've got overseas bonds. You might have uh, corporate debt versus government debt, and they're all going, you have high-yield debt. So all of these are, are going to perform in a little bit of a different way, adding to the level of diversification within our portfolio. And what we know is that there is not one asset class that consistently is the best performer. It's not stocks, and it's not bonds, and it's not real estate, and it's not cash. There is not a lot of consistency if you look at a chart or pattern of what and how one asset class is performing. It's all over the place. You may see a a great year where stocks are way up, and then the following year, they're way down, right? Bonds are less volatile than that. So they're not typically going to be all the way at the top and then all the way at the bottom. You know, bonds might fall a little bit more in sort of an intermediate pattern than stocks. Less volatility, an inverse relationship. It's an incredibly important piece in your portfolio. And don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, right? Now is not the time to decide that one piece of your portfolio that might not be working right now is something to get rid of, right? Maybe that's the time you should start thinking about adding it to your portfolio. We don't want to buy high and sell low. That's not the idea. Yeah, right behind being a successful investor. Yeah, it's, it's maintaining uh, the course. And right? what, and Isabel's getting heated. <laughs> I love bonds. Yeah. Uh, what, what's <laughs> tough is that we saw what happened with interest rates all throughout 2022. We saw what happened with interest rates throughout 2023. So there's this inverse relationship, right, between what happens with interest rates. So as interest rates go up, the prices of existing bonds go down. And so there's a measure of that sensitivity to changes in rates. It's called duration. And so what you want to try to do is limit your duration as much as possible in most instances, right? Because in a changing interest rate environment, you don't necessarily want the price of the bonds to go all over the place. Right now, as we start to see bond rates stabilize, as the Fed has indicated that they're likely to do here through the rest of 23, we're already seeing calls for what, quote unquote, might happen to interest rates in 2024. The idea is that you just want to have a lot of different dollars in a lot of different places. There's no one magical investment in any market environment where you're going to make just loads of cash or loads of, you know, just tons of return. What you have to do is try to figure out the least amount of risk that you have to take on to reach your particular goals. So if you're younger, if you're starting your career, you're in your accumulation phase, then you have the ability to weather these different sorts of market environments. You may not have all that much in bonds. Maybe you do, right? I've got I've got a lot of younger clients who are incredibly conservative. And so we have to find ways to offset that equity risk. But in terms of what we've seen with cash right now, it's difficult because money market rates, I mean, you can see just substantial potential there for basically risk-less assets. But that's not likely to continue forever and ever. So when it comes to, you know, how you diversify, just remember, there's no one magical asset. Right now, everybody thinks, oh my gosh, I should just be 100% in money market and capture five, five and a quarter percent all day long. It doesn't work like that because once rates do start to change, this magical investment that you're in will also start to change. And then you also have to factor in what inflation is doing on the back end. So I would always kind of give this example, um, you know, people want to have a million dollars in cash. 
Well, basically, you take the inflation rate, put a negative sign in front of that, and that's theoretically what you're losing in a zero interest rate environment, which is what we saw, you know, multiple years ago. So what you think is just incredibly conservative, what you think is incredibly, you know, risk-free may not be. You're going broke safely. Yeah. And so that's that's what it is. So just be mindful and, and remember to take the least amount of risk necessary for you to reach your overall goals. Great way to put it. All right, we are going to keep the questions and answers rolling, but we got to take a quick break. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Are you worried about the current volatility of the market, inflation rates, talk of a recession? Are you second-guessing your investment decisions? What better time than now to ensure your finances are moving forward than by getting an expert second opinion from an Edelman Financial Engines planner? Whether you already have a planner or simply need a new perspective, they can help you manage your wealth plan to both weather the volatility of the market today and help you protect and preserve it over the long term. To schedule your complimentary wealth checkup today, call 833-PLAN-EFE. That's 833-752-6333. Or visit their website at efewealthplanners.com. Put your uncertainties to rest once and for all. Schedule your complimentary wealth checkup right now. We are back with Isabel Barrow and Andy Smith, both wealth planners at Edelman Financial Engines. We have been digging into your questions. Let's get right to the next one. Andy, this one's for you. It's probably on a lot of folks' minds right now, given that we are mid-holiday season, and this is a time that I think a lot of people spend or at least think about their family. The question is, if I want to save for a child's future or a grandchild's future, what are the ways and the options that I have to do this? Sure. Um, So it kind of comes down to two big questions. How much do you want to give and where do you want these dollars to reside? In terms of the location, it can be fairly easy, right? You've got the 529, you know, plans that are available with the different states. You have UTMA or UGMA, Uniform Transfer to Minor, Uniform Gift to Minor accounts. Uh, And then you have just general brokerage accounts, right? Just general taxable savings. That's basically the aquarium into which you're going to be pouring assets and then you invest from there. So each account or each method has kind of its pros and cons. 529s, remember, as long as you're using the dollars for qualified education expenses, the dollars grow tax-free and you can pull the money out tax-free. If you decide that Junior or Missy don't need the dollars and they need a car instead or apartment rent or anything else, you can still get the money out, but you're going to be basically paying taxes on those amounts out. For the uniform transfer to minor or gift to minor accounts, it's great. You basically control the account until the age of majority. But once Junior or Missy hit the age of majority, they can basically take those dollars and go buy trips to Mexico and the fastest sports car on the planet. So you have to decide, right, how do you want to give the money? The brokerage account, I think, is fantastic because you control it. You put in however much you want. You can take out however much you want. If you need to supplement for education expenses, you can. If you need to supplement for a car or tools or rent or whatever else that the child or grandchild may need, you have that flexibility. Now, when it comes to the amount to put in, remember for 2023, the gift tax limit is 17000 So you can give, you know, each person 17000 for 2023. So if you're married, you can give it. 
your spouse can give it. So all of a sudden, Junior has thirty four grand, um, you know, in his pocket to do something with. Now, if you're just putting money into a brokerage account, there's not the gift tax limits. Uh, for twenty twenty four, the gift tax limit goes up to eighteen thousand. So once you decide where it goes, once you decide how much you're going to do, then how do you invest it, right? And depending upon the age of the child, the potential timing of the need, theoretically, you could be pretty aggressive, right? Because if they're two or three or four years old, they have a pretty substantial period of time before which they're going to need the money. If they're 16, college is in two years, you want to give them the money, but earmark those assets for different things, then that's a conversation that you're going to have with the child, the grandchild, or the parents involved. So it really comes down to where is it going to go, how much you're going to do, and then what to do with it inside the account. Can I just clarify something? I mean, I, you said the brokerage account you think is fantastic. Yeah. Do you think it's better than a 529 for educational purposes? Um, I think it depends on the situation that you see in front of you. So, for example, my family, I come from a trades background. So there are some children out there that are incredibly intelligent, incredibly gifted. They have no business being in college. And so in some ways, it's kind of doing them a disservice plowing money into a 529 that unless they're able to focus those dollars on accredited kind of apprenticeship programs or trade school programs, then you're doing everything that you're supposed to be doing or want to be doing, right? Providing for the child, providing for the grandchild. But then all of a sudden you're jamming yourself up on the back end because you want to give the kid money, but the kid's just not destined to be able to use these dollars for qualified, quote unquote, qualified education expenses. There's a trade-off, right, with the brokerage accounts. If there's, you know, dividends or income earned over time, those are taxable events. As you buy or sell and realize capital gains, you know, you you have those capital gains taxes to contend with. But theoretically, I mean, if you want to continue to add money into an account over time, if you're constantly buying rather than, you know, frequent rebalancing or frequent sales, there's different ways to kind of navigate that capital gains exposure. What I have found over time, and I'm sure that any number of people are going to call and tell me that I'm a complete knucklehead, but what I've found over time with clients is that they appreciate that flexibility. And so if the child needs rent, you can get them that money for rent. If they need a new mm -hmm. car, if they need tools, if they do need education or whatever else that it is, or God forbid the child ends up just being a complete screwball and you don't want to give them any money until they get their act together, then there's no time commitment, right? Like you have with a transfer to minor or a gift to minor account. There's no issue about changing beneficiaries or, or anything that you'd have to do on the 529 side. I've found that the brokerage account just maintains flexibility and control for the donor in a lot of different ways that some of the other accounts haven't. And it, it does do all those things. But I would, also, I would argue that if you have a very specific goal for someone, if, you, if you're a grandparent or a parent and you say, my goal with this pot of money is to save for college or save for education, the 529 is actually pretty flexible now. I mean, in, in the sense that, you know, you can use some of it if your child goes to private school. So if you have a child in elementary school or high school, you can use $10,000 a year to pay for that tuition. And also, if you have multiple children, 
grandchildren or multiple grandchildren, it's pretty flexible in the sense that if one of the kids goes to trade school and doesn't use it all, well, okay, move it on to grandchild two or grandchild three. I mean, you can change the beneficiary right. of that right. 529. And there's some there's some significant tax breaks. I mean, if you're making contributions within your, your state's plan, I mean, there's some states where if you're a retiree, they don't have a limit. If you're, if you're over a certain age, they don't have a limit on how much you can put in and take a deduction for. So there's, it's, it's actually, it can be pretty flexible. And, and also, you know, if at the end of the day, there's still money left in the plan, depending on how much it is, that grandchild, child, whomever the beneficiary is might be able to actually convert it to a Roth IRA under some of the new rules. So while I agree with you, there are cases where you just say the 529 is too restrictive for what you want to use this money for. I think that, you know, I guess it really depends on your use case, right? What you're going to be using it for. But I, I'm a big Big fan of the 529s. Love the triple tax benefits of that. And um, I use it for my children, you know, but I, I am cognizant of making sure I don't save too much because mm-hmm. that would be a problem also. You don't want to have too much in those plans that you then have to figure out how to how to deal with the taxes and penalties and all of that. Isabel, while we're talking about different types of investments, we've got a question from a listener who asks, what's the difference between the types of funds you own, like ETFs and institutional funds, and the funds I can buy on my own, like no-fee mutual funds? Well, there's a lot. I mean, there's really a lot of differences to these different types of funds. Let's just kind of break it down into, I, I think, fees, access, so minimal, meaning minimums and internal expense ratios and liquidity. So I'll just start with, for example, ETFs. That's a, that stands for an exchange traded fund. They're mutual funds, right? They're funds. They're, it's a pooled investment, meaning it's got a lot of stuff in it, a lot of different investments in it that make up one fund. That, But the difference between an ETF and a traditional mutual fund is that the exchange traded fund trades in, in a marketplace, right? So you can buy it and sell it throughout the day. Unlike a traditional mutual fund where you just, you know, you, you put in your order to buy and then at the end of the day, market close, you get a price and then you get the number of shares based on the dollar amount that you purchased. And it's all based on that that kind of average daily balance of the investments within the fund. So you have a little less transparency in how much you're paying for what you're getting. There are taxes also. There's a big difference between a traditional mutual fund and an exchange-traded fund in terms of taxes. Because in an exchange-traded fund, typically your tax is going to be related to how much tax you pay, assuming this is in a taxable account. The taxes that you pay are going to be based on your you know, what you bought it for, what you sold it for, and then that capital gain, and maybe some distributions the fund passes through. In a traditional mutual fund, it's going to operate a little bit differently because your taxes are actually going to be based on the activity of the fund itself, which you don't have a lot of clarity into throughout the year. So you might get a distribution at the end of the year because the fund had a whole lot of people that took money out throughout the year uh, for one reason or another, and they had to sell a lot of their, I don't know, whatever stock they had, uh, you know, stocks in the portfolio that were up in value. So all of a sudden, you have a big distribution coming to you that has nothing to do with, you know, how much you paid for the fund and, and you know, you may still be invested in it. So taxes are another big difference as well. T- uh, expense ratios. So expense ratios can be different between an ETF, an institutional fund, and a traditional mutual fund. Expense ratio is what you're paying 
within the fund, and you you almost never see this unless you're looking at the fund's prospectus, um, it's what you're paying um, as an underlying cost to just being an investor, to being invested in that particular fund. And in an exchange-traded fund or an institutional fund, those are traditionally lower expense ratio, lower cost than a traditional retail mutual fund that you can buy on your own. There's a big, broad range, but typically speaking, institutional funds are a little bit less. An institutional fund is similar to a traditional retail mutual fund that you might see and and be able to have access to just on your brokerage account. Um, But they are sold usually to institutions that have a very large buy-in, meaning they have a very large minimum. It might be a million-dollar minimum or maybe a $10 million minimum. And I would kind of equate this to shopping at a gourmet grocery store versus shopping at, you know, the the Costco or the Sam's Club, right? So you're you're getting lower pricing because the institutional fund is sort of buying in bulk. They're buying a lot larger lots of shares. They're getting things for less in theory, and that's why their costs are lower. There's a lot of other differences as well, but I would say that that liquidity cost, those are some of the biggest differences between those different types of, of funds. We we will use all of those funds in our clients' portfolios, but certainly thinking about the underlying cost, the expense ratio of the funds is a really important factor into our decision-making process as to what we're going to own on behalf of our clients. But if you notice what she said, she kind of talked about the operational mechanics of the investments. It's not like Oh my gosh, I, I want to buy this and I can only buy it inside of a traditional 40 act mutual fund. Um, you know, ETFs, uh, mutual funds, inst- institutional funds, they have very similar investment opportunities. Um, a lot of times what we've seen on the active management side is still kind of pervasive on the mutual fund side of the house. There are actively managed exchange traded funds that come out. So if you're just trying to figure out where you can own investment type A, you know, you have a lot of, of, of flexibility there, but it comes down to kind of understanding the, the operational mechanics between those different investments. And it could be like if you're in a 401k, you got no choice, right? Here's 20 investments. Make the best of it. If you're in kind of a full service brokerage, or a discount brokerage, and you have the ability to kind of pick and choose what you want, then you would go into these different things. So it's, I mean, there's tens of thousands of of investments out there. You just got to kind of noodle through and figure out what you're focusing on. Yeah, or have somebody help you noodle through as you guys do every day. Yeah, Andy, we've got a listener who wrote in and said, can you talk a little bit about different strategies for creating a retirement income stream between pre- and post-tax IRAs as well as brokerage accounts? You know, as we head into what people are calling peak 65, which is 2024, right? Next year, more people are turning 65 years old every single day than at any other point in our history. 12,000 people a day are going to turn 65. A lot of people are going to have this question. Uh, every time you hear a bell, Clarence, that's a person turning 65. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of what it is. So, um, so when I look at this, when I build these income streams for people, I'm trying to factor in different income streams other than just the investments that they already have. So when you talk about pre-tax accounts, that means that you've put money in and gained some sort of tax deduction on the front end. But then anything else, anything that you pull out, 
down the road then is going to be taxable, right? At federal levels, if not state levels, if you're in a state that has state income tax. Uh, post-tax, right? Roth, you've paid taxes on the money that's gone in. Anything that you pull out, theoretically, after a period of time, then is not taxable. And then you have brokerage accounts. You can put in whatever you want. You can take out whatever you want. You're taxed on dividends and income throughout the year. Uh, you're taxed on any time you're realizing capital gains within those particular accounts. So what I do is the first thing I try to focus on is what is actually coming into these people's lives from the outside, namely Social Security, pension, and any sort of part-time income, consulting income, farm income, whatever else is there. So that's your accounts receivable. Your accounts payable, right, are your expenses. That's just what it costs you to live on a regular basis. So if there's a difference between what's coming in and what's going out, if you are bringing in more money than you have to spend, well, then you're cash flow positive and you don't have to worry about creating a retirement income stream until you turn required minimum distribution age and then we start kind of down that path. If there's a deficit, right, if you're bringing in a certain amount of money and your costs are more than that, then you do have to create this retirement income stream. And so what I do is I look at all the different accounts that they have and I try to figure out what that combination needs to be at different ages to make it as tax efficient as possible. And what I mean by that is this. Anything that you pull out of a brokerage account, if there's a loss, right, if you're realizing a loss as you generate cash to pull money out, that's not a taxable event. If there are gains, typically, you know, the capital gains rate that people are paying is lower than any sort of income rate that they would be paying. So I'm trying to take advantage of, of lower capital gains exposure. And so I might pull money out of a brokerage account faster or earlier than what I would do for Roth IRAs or traditional IRAs. There's a unique opportunity here um, that we're really focusing on the next couple of years, at least until we get a little bit more guidance on what happens at the end of 2025 with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act and the sunsetting of current tax rates. And so it may be that I am accelerating distributions from pre-tax IRAs and either putting those dollars into Roth IRAs as a conversion or that's just what people are living on ahead of time because we're able to realize and know what those taxes are versus whatever it would be down the road. So it really depends on kind of what's coming in, what's going out, and then figuring out that difference. But it's about being as tax efficient as possible with all the different accounts that you have. Everybody's situation is different. Everybody's um, reticence or eagerness to pay taxes is different. Um, and everybody's ability to manage that potential tax bill in a Roth conversion is different because it's usually ideal to pay any taxes that are owed for Roth conversions with outside money. And so if you don't have a lot of savings, then you're trying to keep that in mind as you look at accelerating taxable distributions or Roth conversions. But it comes down to how much you need, when do you need it, and where is it coming from. We've talked about this before. Just because you put in one plan in 2023 doesn't mean that that's going to be the plan for 2024 or 25 or 26. It really is a matter of working with your advisor, working with your CPA to figure out what's going to be ideal for your particular situation. Andy, I think that there are a lot of people listening who are like, that sounds so confusing, right? Yeah. And I think, but I think 
it's it's actually worse than that. It's not just all the things that you just laid out because it gets worse, right? Because if you're taking distributions and you go over a certain income level and you're over 65 and you're already on Medicare, now you're taking money out of the wrong account. You could it's it's not just the taxes you're going to pay. You could end up paying an additional Medicare premium. Or if you're under 65 but you're using an Affordable Care Act plan from, you know, from your state, you could end up losing a subsidy that you had before because you took money out of the wrong account. And so, I'm not trying to sound like a sales pitch here, but I am telling you that if you are not careful with this stuff, if you're not working with someone to help you with it, you need to really understand these rules because this can have a real snowballing effect on not only your taxes, but your Medicare premiums, all these things. So it's complicated, but it's more complicated even than what we're than what we're sharing here. So I mean well, I think that helps. Neither neither of you brought up social security, right? Which is yet another wrinkle in which account you do or you don't want to be pulling from because there is that idea that perhaps you want to delay Social Security, which means pulling from some of these assorted accounts to maximize your Social Security benefit down the road. That's another layer of calculation. So Isabel, I agree with you. You need help. You just, you need help with this And you need it on a consistent basis because, as Andy said, what works in 2023 may not work in 2024 or 2025 or 2026. It changes every single year. Thank you guys so much for the great answers, for the great conversations. That is all for today's show. I want to thank both of you for being here. Absolutely. Thanks. It was fun. I like these questions. I do too. I think we should do this more often. And if you've got questions or any of the topics we covered today or anything related to financial planning, give the folks at Edelman Financial Engines a call at 833-PLAN-EFE. Talk with one of the planners like Andy, like Isabel, who can help you make the best financial decisions for you and for your family. And be sure to subscribe to the Everyday Wealth Podcast wherever you stream your favorite podcasts or just visit everydaywealth.com where all of our episodes are available to you. Thanks so much for listening and we'll talk soon. You've been listening to Edelman Financial Engines Everyday Wealth with Gene Chatsky. Edelman Financial Engines has been ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. If you've missed an episode or are interested in additional personal finance topics, be sure to subscribe to the Everyday Wealth Podcast. Our podcast library offers helpful insights on topics such as tax-efficient portfolios, retirement withdrawal strategies, investing, and financial planning, to name just a few. To learn more, visit our website, everydaywealth.com, or find our show wherever you stream your favorite podcast.